Welcome to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. Russia's invasion of Ukraine on February 24th of last year continues to be a major news story, and it's led to widespread condemnation of Russia throughout the West, where it's been depicted as a conflict between an evil empire and an innocent victim. In uh, a new book titled War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict, Medea Benjamin and Nicholas Davies argue that the situation is more complicated than it's often described to be. It's published by OR Books and brings Medea Benjamin, a peace activist and co-founder of Code Pink, to our show now. Welcome. Hey, Leonard, nice to be on with you. Your book was released in November, and a lot's happened since then, including the recent visit to Washington of Vladimir Zelensky. Yes, it only reinforces the issues we talk about in the book, but it does show that he and Biden felt it was necessary for him to come and make sure there was a unified support in the Democratic Party and that those who had dissented in the Republicans would be uh, brought into line and to show people back home in Ukraine that the U.S. was with them for the long run. And I think to shore up that same sentiment in Europe, where there has been a lot of a questioning of this war and a lot of big protests that we don't see here in the United States. Well, the whole situation has been rather confusing. You note in your introduction that just a week before the Russian invasion, the the two of you wrote an article that explored the three possible outcomes of the crisis in Ukraine. And you wrote that an unprovoked Russian invasion was the least likely outcome. Yes. Uh, we also heard the U.S. saying, uh, they're going to invade, they're going to invade. And we thought it was a lot of crying wolf. So uh, we recognized that we were wrong. And in fact, that was one of the reasons that it spurred us to dig a lot deeper and write this book. Although it would be difficult to defend Russia's aggression, you argue that the West reneging on promises to halt eastward expansion of NATO uh, in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union, played a major role in prompting Putin to act. Yeah, you know, there are many people, even on the left, who want to dismiss this whole idea that NATO expansion was a provocation. But, Leonard, I think it's so important for people to read this book because they can see uh, the warning after warning after warning from U.S. officials, U.S. ambassadors in Moscow, George Kennan, the architect of the containment policy with the Soviet Union, academics, uh, one after one saying, this is not a good idea. When there was expansion uh, after promising it wouldn't be, it happened under uh, Clinton, then it happened again under Bush Sr., and then uh, now you, you have NATO that is really uh, right up to Russia's borders. And when you hear the warnings about it, uh, people were saying, this is not good. This is crossing Russia's red line. This will lead to a greater conflict, which indeed it has, unfortunately. Well, it has scared some of Russia's neighbors. Hasn't the war led Finland and Sweden to join NATO this year? Also, in September, Ukraine applied for NATO membership. Yeah, let's take those separately. And in, in uh, uh, the case of Finland and Sweden, I think it's a 
a terrible shame. But yes, Putin's invasion, which we roundly condemn in the book, has led to precisely what he didn't want. He was trying to weaken NATO, and instead he has strengthened NATO, uh, getting those two countries, and Finland shares a very long border with uh, Russia, uh, to join Uh, And uh, in terms of Ukraine joining, you know, this is something that has been the contentious issue because having a stronghold for a an aggressive uh, um, uh, alliance that is in a negative position towards Russia uh, was something that Russia said it would not allow. And when in 2008, at the NATO meeting, George Bush pushed for the uh, Europeans to agree with him, despite their misgivings, uh, that NATO should invite Ukraine to be part of it. Uh, Well, is Ukraine already a de facto member of NATO in a way? Well, that came later. That wasn't the the case in 2008. In fact, today, you can hear Zelensky say that it's a de facto member of NATO, uh, and he is asking for it to be a de jure, meaning a legal member of NATO. But it's important, Leonard, to understand that just at the beginning of this war, there were peace talks that had started. And during those talks, Zelensky said to his people, our dream of uh, of joining NATO, um, it looks like it just can't happen. Uh, we are going to have to be a neutral country with guarantees for our security from powerful states. Uh, but neutrality is something that, that Zelensky had accepted. Now, when the West had said, you don't have to really negotiate, we're going to be with you all the way and give you all these weapons, uh, he has changed his tune and said, that he would like to be fast-tracked into NATO. So it still is an issue, and I think for any negotiations that Russia would accept, it would have to include neutrality for Ukraine. You argue that NATO is no longer a defensive alliance, but an offense, an offensive one. And you discuss NATO's involvement in the bombing of Kosovo and the U.S.-led invasion of Afghanistan, uh, its involvement in the invasion of Libya, and support of uh, the U.S. occupation of Iraq. Um, So what happened to NATO? Well, NATO was looking for a raison d'etre after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And in order to do that, it started looking far beyond the North Atlantic. As you mentioned, it was involved in the invasion of Afghanistan, of Libya, and now it has set its sights not just on Russia, but on China, which is extremely dangerous because, you know, what does China have to do with the North Atlantic? Uh, It really should be an organization that was disbanded at the time when the Soviet Union broke up, and we wouldn't be in this situation today. Unfortunately, the U.S. has used NATO as a way to keep Russia within the U.S. orbit and um, uh, to make uh, Europe dependent on the United States for its security, something that uh, leaders, some of the leaders in Europe, like Emmanuel uh, Macron in France, have said uh, that Europe needs its own security architecture. And I think probably as a result uh, down the line, uh, when hopefully this war comes to an end without going into a nuclear war, we will probably see a lot more movement on the part of Europe 
to have its own security structure because its interests are not totally aligned with the interests of the United States. Nuclear or not, um, hasn't uh, the impact of this war uh, meant billions of dollars paid to defense contractors? Yes, it's quite remarkable to see how much money has been allocated for these weapons and how much the profits of the weapon companies have gone up, not just from what our Congress is allocating, but also the push for Europe to share in the costs, the enormous costs of this war. And a lot of the money they have spent is going to buy weapons from the United States. And there is a lot of complaining among uh, some of the parties in Europe that the United States is profiting from this war, that it's the weapons companies that are profiting and the energy companies as well, despite the uh, efforts to use the sanctions against Russia as a way to speed up the transition to clean energy, uh, they couldn't just do that fast enough. And so U.S. energy companies have stepped into that breach and, according to Europeans, are selling energy, especially gas, to uh, the Europeans at about four times the price that the Americans are paying. So they consider both the weapons and the uh, energy bills as part of war profiteering or price gouging. In this book about Ukraine, you've included the history of NATO intervention in the Middle East. How how is that relevant? Well, we wanted to point out that NATO is not a defensive alliance because that's what you hear over and over and over again. And I think it's important for people to understand uh, the aggressive nature of NATO and how it has gone way beyond the borders of Europe. Uh, We talk about how it got involved in the uh, U.S.-led occupation of Iraq, uh, how that was a a war that should never have happened, uh, and that unfortunately, instead of uh, um, condemning the United States for a uh, war that uh, where Saddam Hussein did nothing to threaten the United States, uh, NATO then got involved, jumped into that occupation, Uh, and has been involved with the United States in many of its overseas wars. What about the U.N.? Didn't the U.N. General Assembly vote to condemn Russia's invasion of of Ukraine? Well, yes, and it was right to do that. I mean, uh, the uh, Security Council couldn't because Russia would obviously veto it. Um, The General Assembly, uh, there is a lot of condemnation of the war of of Russia's war. And we think that's a good thing. We think Russia should be roundly condemned for violating the UN Charter. But I also want to point out, Leonard, that the nations around the world, and particularly the global south, uh, do not want to take sides. They have explicitly said, uh, many of them, including uh, many countries in Africa, that this war is hurting their people, that they had nothing to do with it. And yet the lack of grain exports that were so important to Africa and the Middle East uh, was causing increased hunger and food insecurity. And so their call was to end this war. They say, we take the side of peace and all of the parties involved have to find a way to come to the negotiating table. 
Your book focuses on the war itself and its historical context, the 2014 Maidan protests, which led to the ousting of the Ukrainian president at the time, and the war in the Donbass between Ukrainian and Russian-backed separatist forces. Didn't that involve Ukraine ceding territory in the Donbass region, where many of the people are Russian speakers? Yes, many of the people are Russian speakers in the Donbass as well as in Crimea. And we give a blow-by-blow blow account what happened to that popular uh, peaceful uprising and how it turned violent and how the transition from a pro-Russian leader to a pro-Western leader um, with the help of manipulation of the U.S. government and the Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Nuland, uh, as well as the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, um, led to the uprising in the Donbass, the breakaway of those two republics, uh, as well as the Russian uh, seize, Russia seizing of Crimea. Um, we also go into great detail well, about Well, don't many the, Russians see Crimea as an integral part of their country? They do see it as an integral part. It was part of Russia for more time than it was part of Ukraine for 200 years. And it was actually Nikita Khrushchev uh, who handed over uh, Crimea to the uh, government of Ukraine at a time when Ukraine was still part of the Soviet republics. Um, so this is definitely contested territory, and Russia has a large port and base in Ukraine that uh, the Russian government feels is uh, critical for its defense, and it's not going to easily give up Crimea. In fact, I think it's not going to give up Crimea uh, no without what. some horrific fight in which it would probably, uh, uh, Ukraine would probably not be able to win. Could Putin have thought that the Russians would be welcomed by the people of Ukraine as liberators and might prefer to exchange the government in Kiev for a pro-Russian one? Uh, perhaps he thought that. Perhaps he thought that there would not be so much of a military resistance. Whatever he thought, it was a terrible miscalculation. And uh, it seems that his intelligence services are not so intelligent uh, and did not give him good information. So the Russians have been uh, pushed back into the uh, southern and eastern part of the country. And to that extent, you could say that Russia has already lost if indeed its goal was to put a Russia-friendly government in Kiev. Yes, I'm speaking with Medea Benjamin, co-author with Nicholas J.S. Davies of a new book called War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. It's published by O.R. Books. This is WBAI in New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Putin has argued that this was a denazification and demilitarization of Ukraine. Where did that idea come from? Well, certainly there are neo-Nazi elements in Ukraine. There uh, that, are neo-Nazi elements in the United States, I think, probably in Russia as well. Absolutely. They're all over. Uh, they are all over. So uh, I, I don't think this is any kind of justification for the invasion of Ukraine. I'm just saying uh, that he is uh, talking about the neo-Nazis who 
have played a very small role politically because uh, while in 2012 they did get 10% of the vote, uh, after that they only got a small percentage of the vote. Uh, but they played a major role in the paramilitary groups that they formed in threatening the heads of state of Ukraine that if they wanted to implement the Minsk Accords, uh, they would uh, find themselves hanging from a tree because uh, these groups uh, insisted that all of Ukraine, uh, including the Donbass, had to be part of the territory and not an autonomous uh, territory. So they have played a, a, a very negative role. Uh, but once again, it is no justification for the invasion and the brutality that the Russians have unleashed against the Ukrainian people. How important was the U.S. involvement in the 2014 Ukraine coup and Ukraine's failure to implement the Minsk Accords? And why well, didn't the Minsk two-peace agreement succeed? Uh, this is something that is uh, very much debated and the level of involvement, Leonard, is something that we will we'll, uh, probably see years from now, if not decades from now, when there are all kinds of uh, uh, efforts to release uh, security documents that we can't see now. But what we do see is more of the symbolic involvement, like the leaked phone call between Victoria Newland and the ambassador uh, to U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, um, in which they talked about who would be uh, the next prime minister of Ukraine. Uh, we also have the photographic evidence, for example, of Gloria of Vic Victoria Newland herself out in Maidan Square, uh, giving out sandwiches and cookies to the uh, to the uh, protesters. And I liken it to what would happen, Leonard, if when the uh, Republicans who wanted to uh, uh, overtake Congress and change the government in the United States had been greeted as they riotously entered the Capitol by Russian officials handing them out sandwiches and saying, you know, you go, go and overthrow the government. I mean, it is certainly something unfitting of a foreign government. And of course, for many years, the U.S., through the Agency of International Development, through the National Endowment of Democracy, um, had been giving millions of U.S. taxpayer dollars uh, to try to shore up pro-Western groups in Ukraine. So the involvement is very deep. Uh, and was obviously very provocative uh, in terms of how the Russians were viewing this. Wasn't the overthrow of Viktor Yanukovych, the previous president, a positive thing? Well, it turns out it was a very negative thing because it led to the uh, spin-out republics and uh, eventually led to this war. So it would have been better to hold new elections and uh, do it in a way that was... Uh, uh, something where the um, uh, the, uh, boyka the those who broke away in the um, Donbass could be brought into the process. So in the end, it has been disastrous. Didn't Zelensky run for president of Ukraine with a promise that he would engage in more talks around Minsk and try to find dialogue with the Russian Federation around issues in the Donbass? Absolutely. And I think that's why he had such overwhelming support from the people who wanted to see an end to this conflict. 
But unfortunately, once he got into power, he was threatened by those right wing elements uh, who said that he uh, in no way would they uh, abide by his desire to meet with the leaders of those breakaway republics and uh, call off the uh, uh, the paramilitary groups that had been fighting uh, along the uh, Donbass line. Uh, so they refused to implement those political parts of the uh, Minsk II agreements. And uh, Zelensky found himself, uh, like the others before him, unable to carry out what was in the agreement. And it's so interesting, Leonard, that there was an interview by the former leader of, of Germany, uh, Angela Merkel, who said that the uh, Minsk Accord was used to buy time for Ukraine. So instead of using it as a time to uh, stop the, the arming, stop the conflict, uh, allow the international observers to uh, do their job, it was a time when the West used it to pour in more weapons, train more Ukrainian military, and really gear up for a fight with Russia. And what Angela Merkel said is, how can the Russians ever trust the West in peace talks? That's something that we should uh, think very profoundly about, because there is, of course, no trust on either side right now. But there's still a need to move towards negotiations. The Ukrainian political right said, uh, we're not going to give up any part of Ukraine. We'll fight for every inch. Didn't they even threaten to hang Zelensky by a tree if he continued uh, with the peace initiatives? That's right. So Zelensky, if indeed he wanted to abide by what he campaigned for, uh, was not able to do it because of these threats. And because these are people, although small in number, um, they are armed and they were uh, carrying out attacks on the breakaway republics in the Donbass and refused to stop. Uh, the Russian proposed a 12-point plan. Uh, was it agreeable to Zelensky? Because he went on national TV to talk about uh, how his mission was to bring peace to the region and that the best way to proceed was to promise to be a neutral country. Well, yes, and that's why it's so uh, uh, such a incredibly missed opportunity when the two sides were talking early on after the invasion. So the invasion happened in late February. By late March, early April, the uh, leader of Turkey, Erdogan, was mediating talks between the two sides. And they were moving forward in a very positive direction. And as you said, uh, Zelensky even addressed his people, uh, saying that they were moving towards a peace resolution that included neutrality. Uh, but then the head of the UK at that time, Boris Johnson, went to meet with Zelensky and basically told him that there was no reason to negotiate, that he should just go for victory, and that the, quote, collective West would be supporting him in that. And after that, we had the visit by the U.S. Secretary Austin, Secretary of Defense, who made the comment that um, we had to weaken Russia so that it would not be able to do this kind of thing again. 
And so those talks fell apart. And there are officials in the Turkish government who said uh, that it was unfortunate after these visits how Zelensky basically uh, nixed the proposal and went ahead with uh, the con with the Western support uh, to uh, not uh, countenance any kind of peace talks at that time. Zelensky said uh, at, at this point, we don't want to talk at all. We want to recover every inch of territory. Well, that's right. And that's where things stand right now, Leonard, is if you have the two sides taking this maximalist position. You have Zelensky on one hand saying uh, we want to go back not to pre-invasion, uh, but to 2014 to get back all of the Donbass and Crimea. And on the other hand, you have the Russians who are saying that these four uh, parts of um, uh, of the territory uh, that where they had the sham referendum belong to Russia, even though Russia can't even uh, militarily control these regions. And but I see that Leonard as a as two bargaining points. That's where you start. You start with what you absolutely want, and then you compromise from there. But there hasn't been enough of an effort to uh, push the sides to the negotiating table because there is this illusion that somehow. For one side or the other, victory is possible. What role did the United States play in deciding who's going to be the next president after Viktor Yanukovych was overthrown with the help of the United States? Well, they played a pivotal role because we know that from the leaked audio tape in which Victoria Nuland uh, says uh, that, uh, as she called him, Yats. Is she still uh, in the government, Victoria Nuland? Is she what? Is she still working in the U.S. government? She is working in the U.S. government. And that's the most remarkable thing, that she has managed to stay uh, in Democratic and Republican administrations after doing so much harm in uh, Ukraine in the uh, years, those critical years of 2014. She continues to this day. And she is part of the uh, neocon group. Her husband is Robert Kagan, one of the key uh, uh, architects of this neocon theory uh, that the U.S. can and should manipulate other countries and other governments. Uh, I find it quite remarkable that Biden has kept her on. But was she, she wasn't there before Biden. What was uh, Trump's policy was a bit more comp complex, wasn't it? Well, you know, it was, and people uh, think that Trump is a, a Russian puppet. Yet, on the other hand, uh, Trump uh, is the one who lifted the restrictions that Obama had on only selling defensive weapons to Ukraine. So when Trump came in, uh, the, the, um, uh, the, there were no limits anymore on, uh, on uh, just defensive weapons. And that has continued, of course, um, after in, in the even greater and much greater quantities after the Russian invasion. But even before that, there were offensive weapons that were being sold to Ukraine. Hmm. Millions have been uprooted from their homes, thousands killed in this conflict, and there have been very damaging Russian missile strikes at the country's power infrastructure. Um, it, it looks rather depressing. Well, <laughs> scary and uh, and uh, I, I, it's hard to imagine an end to this. 
It is very scary, Leonard, when you see how much the Ukrainian people are suffering. The Russians now using the tactic of destroying a lot of the infrastructure. And if we're cold here in the United States right now, think how cold it is in Ukraine. Mm. And people who are going through this winter now, many of them without adequate access to electricity or heating or even water, uh, it's really very barbaric. And, uh, 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 and yet uh, I feel that the idea of that Zelensky put forward when he was here, that all we have to do is just keep sending in more lethal weapons, uh, that somehow this is going to be good for the Ukrainian people and result in a victory, uh, is just irrational. And that the majority of the U.S. media in this country puts forward that same idea that victory is around the corner uh, and yet you have in the Pentagon the people who are most in the know about this, and you have the number one uh, advisor to President Biden on the military, the secretary of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, saying that there is a stalemate on the ground and that no mi military victory is in the offing and that this is a good time in wintertime to go to the negotiating table. So you see tremendous division within the Biden administration itself. And you have the odd situation where the diplomats, like our number one diplomat, who was supposed to be Anthony Blinken, is going around the world trying to get more weapons to Ukraine, whereas people in the Pentagon are trying to say, whoa, let's step back for a minute. This could go terribly out of control, and uh, this is a good time for negotiations. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. <laughs> I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Medea Benjamin. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show. We'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopez at large, and we thank you very much. And I return now to Medea Benjamin, who is uh, the co-author with Nicholas J.S. Davis, uh, of a new book called War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Census Conflict. It has a preface by Katrina Vandelhover uh, and is published by OR Books. Medea is a co-founder of Code Pink and the Fair Trade Advocacy Group Global Exchange. Um, and Leonard, um, can I just say how important it is that BAI uh, is giving out information like this at this time when the corporate media is giving a line that is 
so one-sided that won't allow voices like mine on the air. Uh, and so we find it very hard to build up a movement, a rational movement calling for peace talks or Christmas truce like we're doing. And BAI and our community radio stations are one of the only ways that we have to really give people the true picture of what's happening in Ukraine and try to get them active in a movement that we have right now called peaceinukraine.org to move our government into a position of calling for peace talks. What role has the media played in all of this? Um, Are we getting conflicting information, or would you say that basically most of the official media have been beating the war drums? Unfortunately, the only place that you're getting some opposition to this war or more context to this war has been on some shows like Tucker Carlson of Fox News. Uh, But for the most part on Fox, MSNBC, CNN and the mainstream uh, papers, you are getting a very, very narrow and I would say biased view. And you don't Uh, think Tucker Carlson is giving a biased view? The the Russians love what he's been saying. He's now being called um, a spokesperson for Russia, for Putin. Yeah, that's because anybody in this context, Leonard, who talks about negotiations uh, in and diplomacy is for some insane reason labeled a pro-Putin person. I am labeled pro-Putin, and I know that if I lived in Russia, I would probably be in jail now protesting this war and protesting Putin. I have absolutely no love for Putin and yet get labeled an apologist all the time. Tucker Carlson has had some of the best uh, narratives on this war that I have heard. Um, do I like Tucker Carlson? No. Do I appreciate what he says on other kinds of issues? No. But on this issue, it's so crazy that the people we have to look to to say this is an unwinnable war are not just the people in the Pentagon. They're also on the extreme right in the Republican Party. They're people like Donald Trump who say, oh, whoa, we better stop and get to the table because this could annihilate all of human uh, of humanity. Um, you know, we have to be hearing that from other voices. And uh, Leonard, I don't know if you followed the initiative that uh, we did, along with the Fellowship of Reconciliation and the National Council of Elders calling for Christmas truce. But I'm very excited about that because it brings it into the moral universe that I feel more comfortable with, uh, which are people like Reverend Barber, the Poor People's Campaign, uh, Jesse Jackson, people from all different faiths, from the National Council of Churches, uh, imams, rabbis, that have signed on to this letter, uh, and it's now about over 1,200. Every time I look, another 100 have signed on. And this is a beautiful example of people who really believe that is it is their moral duty to try to find a way to stop the killing, to call for all sides to come to the table. Reverend Barber is going to do a, a Christmas sermon on Christmas Eve to talk about the moral imperative for a negotiated solution. So that's an exciting new initiative uh, to get voices that people really appreciate and um, and have this moral authority uh, to listen to them 
and uh, maybe this will help turn around the minds of a lot of people. Well, there's been much talk about the fact that there's uh, not much bipartisan support of what's been going on. A fair number of Republicans didn't attend Zelensky's address to Congress, and a few were filmed uh, not standing <laughs> when he entered the room. Uh, so how much of this is a Democrat versus Republican thing in this country? The majority of Republicans are supporting this war. In fact, you have Mitch McConnell saying giving aid to Ukraine is the number one priority of his party, uh, which is a very strange thing to say when there are so many needs uh, here at home. And when more and more Americans are seeing through the one-sided narrative, and there are p opinion polls that are showing now a majority of Americans thinking there should be negotiations. So yes, there is a partisan aspect to this. Uh, for, for example, when the 30 Democrats came out uh, from the Progressive Caucus and said that uh, negotiations would be a good thing and they were shot down by their own party so quickly that in 24 hours they had to retract that letter because they were told that you have to toe the line of the party, which is coming from the White House. So in that sense, it is a partisan issue. Um, but yeah, and, and the number of Republicans who are objecting are, I would say, unfortunately, a small number uh, and that we have to get this out of the realm of partisan politics and push those people in Congress, whether they're Democrat or Republican, to stop the blank check for this war uh, and to support efforts for uh, a um, an audit of where all this money and where all these weapons are going. Uh, but most importantly, we want them to get them to join our efforts to push for negotiations. Well, I've read that the Biden administration won't talk to Putin or to Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. So do we have a sense of what its goals are here? Because uh, right now uh, we had Zelensky's visit to Washington ending with promises of billions more in U.S. support, uh, although no American battle tanks, fighter jets, and long-range precision miss missiles. Um, the, the U.S. has repeatedly said there are weapons it won't send to Ukraine. Still, he left Washington with nearly $2 billion in new arms and equipment and the possibility of $50 billion more next year. Well, there's going to be this week a vote that is going to allocate another $45 mil billion, which will bring us to well over $100 billion for this war in less than a year. And uh, Zelensky keeps asking for not only more weapons, but more high-powered weapons. And I think his visit is to shore up that support. Uh, but that worries me to no end, because you say, what is the end result here? And I don't think uh, that there is any rational response to that coming from the White House. Uh, they uh, Do they really believe that Putin is going to give up Crimea? Do they really believe uh, that um, uh, Putin is going to give up every inch of the Donbass when he has staked his reputation on this? Uh, certainly there is waning support in Russia as well to this war. 
uh, but it doesn't look like it's to the extent that Putin would be overthrown uh, or that there would be a massive revolt inside the military. Um, uh, So the, uh, the end game is totally unclear on both the Russian side, the Ukrainian side, and the U.S. side. But one thing we should be very clear about is something that the head of NATO, uh, the the very hawkish head of NATO, has recently said when he was giving an interview, um, they asked him what was his greatest fear about this. And Jan Stoltenberg said, my greatest fear is that this can spin out of control. And if it goes wrong, it can go terribly wrong. And this could lead to a direct conflict between Russia and uh, NATO. Uh, he is That is his greatest fear. I think it should be our greatest fear um, that this could and probably will go horribly out of control if there is no more pushing for uh, the, the peace talks to begin. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Medea Benjamin, co-author with Nicholas J.S. Davis of a new book from OR Books called War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. Why haven't sanctions against Russia proved more effective. Haven't they hurt many Europeans more than they've hurt the Russians? Well, that's a really important issue to talk about because in the past when Russia, when uh, the U.S. has imposed sanctions not on a strong country like uh, China and uh, on a very uh, on a strong country like um, Russia, but on small countries like um, maybe Cuba or uh, Korea, uh, um, the the sanctions have horrible effect on the local population. But in the case of sanctions on Russia, uh, the the sanctions has, as you said, backfired because so many countries in the, um, like, all of the uh, European countries have been imp- dependent on the aid, uh, uh, on the relatively cheap, uh, um, both um, the uh, the relatively cheap. Um, just one one second. You mean yeah, inexpensive? No, no, uh, sorry, Uh, that that so many of the countries, particularly uh, in Germany, have been in in custom to have the uh, the the um, the the, uh, uh, using the Russian um, gasoline and the Russian uh, all of the um, Russian fertilizer. They've also been, uh, you know, depending on grain from Ukraine and many other countries uh, re- have been relying on foods that come from Ukraine. 
Absolutely. And so the uh, the the response from the uh, the countries in Europe have been that there are so many now people who are uh, are having such a difficult time playing paying for their energy bills. And what we're seeing also is in so many countries, there are tens of thousands of people who are coming out in protests, unlike what we see here, because they're saying that the war is hurting them. Uh, and we're also seeing the war is hurting them in other countries, as uh, we've talked about in uh, in places that have been dependent on the grain, the fertilizers, uh, and the energy supply. So uh, the the I think as this war goes on, um, we are going to see a more of a difference between people in uh, Europe who don't think that we can con continue on and on and on uh, without more opposition among the people. And so we're going to see a need to, uh, something's got to give at some point. There's been a lot of conjecture about the possibility that Putin might employ a limited use of nuclear weapons. Do you think that's likely? What's the current state of the treaties that the United States and Russia signed in the past? You know, it's uh, interesting that people think that the Putin is so crazy, and yet they don't think he would use nuclear weapons. Um, and while the um, there is not talks going on between Biden or the uh, Anthony Blinken, there are some talks going on between the CIA and the National Security Council, uh, as well as the um, as as well as people in the um, in the um, uh, it, 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 people who are uh, calling on um, the Russians to talk to stop the um, the uh, to stop the the um, conflict from going getting out of control because they're worried that there could be a nuclear conflict. So um, you we think have it's likely? to. I think if the Russians are pushed to the extreme, it could be a possibility. When we look at what happened during the uh, the um, when the Russians um, put their nuclear uh, weapons in Cuba during the missile crisis, and we had the uh, possibility of the uh, a, a nuclear attack between when when JFK was talking to Khrushchev, um, the fact that they talked to each other um, to avoid a nuclear war. Uh, JFK afterwards said, "Whenever there is a conflict between a nuclear power, make sure they're not put in the position between." choosing between a humiliating defeat or the use of a nuclear weapon. And I think that's where uh, the uh, wh where we're moving to in the case of Russia and that Biden 
who has talked about the possibility of nuclear Armageddon uh, and the need for an off-ramp for Putin uh, should really be responsible, and that means talking directly to Putin. Don't some people in the Russian military say that Putin has been too restrained in this war and that they have to be more aggressive? Yes. Uh, when you look at how aggressive the United States was in its war on uh, in its war on Iraq, um, there was much more destruction of Iraq uh, than the Russians have done in the case of Ukraine. And so there are those in Russia who are saying um, we should uh, be much more aggressive. Uh, and, you know, much more aggressive at some point means the use of a nuclear weapon. Mm. So it is so dangerous. And I find it remarkable that the um, the narrative in the United States does not talk about uh, the importance of finding a way out. Otherwise, you know, where is this going to lead to? And I don't hear anybody telling us uh, with some uh, level of uh, rationality or certainty that this idea that Zelensky has of getting back Crimea and the Donbass is possible. Meanwhile, Time magazine has named Zelensky its person of the year. I'd like to uh, end this with a, something that you would that you uh, address at the end of your book. You quote Leo Tolstoy as saying, "In all history, there is no war." that was not hatched by governments, governments alone, independent of the interests of the people for whom war is always pernicious, even when successful. Well, that's right. War itself is a, an evil that we have to learn how to overcome if we're going to live as, a, if we're going to survive as a species. I know there's a lot of people who say, well, you can't negotiate with Putin, it's just impossible. And yet there have been negotiations, for example, when it looked like the Zaporizhia nuclear plant was about to explode, um, the uh, two sides came together and negotiated to get the International Atomic Energy Association um, to come get inside the plant and uh, try to stop the, uh, the shelling of the plant that was happening. Uh, there were also negotiations about getting that grain out of Ukraine, and uh, the negotiations were quite successful in getting over 100 um, million tons, 10 million tons of grain outside of Ukraine, uh, allowing for a land as well as a sea corridor. Um, there have also been many prisoner swaps, prisoner swaps both between Ukraine and Russia, as well as between Russia and the United States with Brittany Griner. Uh, so there are many examples of uh, them talking to each other, uh, but it has to be not just on particular issues to stop the war from uh, getting more intense, uh, but it's got to be discussions on how to end this war. I have to end the conversation. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. I've been talking with Medea Benjamin, co-writer with Nicholas J.S. Davis of 
War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict, published by OR Books, with a wonderful blurb from Noam Chomsky, who says, careful, informed, judicious, and invaluable guide. Thank you so much for being on our show. Okay, thank you so much for having me on. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our around 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support BAI to keep the station coming to you. We are have fallen behind on our rent and on payment for our broadcast tower. Uh, and we are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and the number two. WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of London Located Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Census Conflict. So why not make that call right now to 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $10 a month, $15, $20, $25, however much you feel comfortable giving us. It allows us to plan for the future. And we'll say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. Either way, I hope you'll call right now because... WBAI relies totally on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to London Lopate at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one that's on the New York Radio Dollars 100% listener sponsor alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us again on Monday when my guest will be M. Chris Fabricant discussing his new book, Junk Science and the American Criminal Justice System. Have a great weekend. Have a great holiday. Hope to see you on Monday. 